As you're having a seat, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I am an Aggie. And I love it when the Aggies win. Uh, it's kind of fun when we, uh, when we blow out the other team, but um, uh, that's not my favorite victory. Because you notice when uh, we blow out the other team, it gets toward the end of the game, the two percenters leave, right? You know, and that's not very good. It's, that's right. Uh, but the best victories are when the Aggies are coming from behind and time's you know, getting close to run out. And right at the very end, we, we snatch victory. I mean, I love those kind of wins. Those are awesome the worst, of course, is when you know, time's running out and at the very last minute we lose. I, I hate those. And I think that um, what's really stressful is we never know ahead of time, do we? As the clock is going down, we don't know. I have a theory, actually, that, that Aggies have a shorter type lifespan. You know, athletic stress reduces our, our longevity. I think it's kind of like life sometimes. It seems like the clock is running out and we're not sure are we going to win or are we going to lose. It feels like we might lose. And then other times when it actually feels like we're just getting blown out. We need to remind ourselves once in a while that uh, the buzzer has not sounded, the final whistle has not blown. And in fact, we know the final outcome and we win. We win because God wins. God always wins, therefore we always win. And we can rest in that. We can be insecure in that. God will always win. And so we will always win. We began our study of the book of Genesis. It was obvious that God was winning. God was creating and everything that he made was good. And our team was winning. Adam and Eve were winning alongside God. They were walking with God in the cool of the day. They were executing God's commands without any resistance or rebellion. And then Satan came in and he enticed our team to defect and join him. And ever since that point in time, all of human history has been basically a record of our defeat. And in defeat after defeat after defeat, God has graciously reminded us that we will win because God always wins. I want you to read with me again in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. All of human suffering and anguish and misery and pain and sorrow and fear began in this point. This is the point in time where it all began. And all of the the pain and suffering and sorrow that we have experienced in all of human history can be summed up under one curse— I wonder word, it's called the curse. Biblically speaking, you can trace this theme from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Blessing that God intended and the curse that we brought upon ourselves. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He cannot create. He can only maim. He cannot make anything beautiful. He can only destroy, cause decay. But he really isn't our ultimate enemy. Our ultimate enemy is death. The battle is not, in a sense, just against Satan. It's, It's against death. That is our ultimate nemesis, our ultimate enemy. And death creates fear. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. I've never been to a funeral that I would say, in its essence, was fun. (laughs) It's not what funerals are for. 
that moment is a, is a sad moment by nature. It's a fearful moment by its nature. I find it fascinating that when Jesus attended the funeral of his friend Lazarus, he showed up at the tomb and he saw all of the grief and the, the wailing and the sisters that he loved crying, and Jesus also wept. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus wept even though he knew in just a few moments he would have the stone rolled away and he would bring Lazarus out. And yet he wept because death by its nature is such a horrific thing. And Jesus entered into that moment of grief and sorrow and pain that's brought about by death. William Shakespeare wrote a play, it's called Measure by Measure, and he put these words into one of the characters' mouth. So the weariest and most loathed worldly life, that age, ache, poverty, and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise compared to what we fear of death. The famous American writer Jack Kerouac said, I'm young now and can look on my body and soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon. Later it will begin to disintegrate. Then I shall die and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? And as we get older, we're reminded every day that we're dying. Every day. New aches show up and they don't disappear. Paul said the outer man is decaying. The older they get, you get, the more you feel it. Uh, last, year, last week actually was my birthday, and I know most of you missed it, and that's okay. I don't, I don't need the world to celebrate my birthday, but um, I had a birthday, and I celebrated my birthday in, in kind of a, an unusual way. Last Saturday night, so Saturday night, right before I was going to preach on Sunday, I was in our study uh, with my wife. I was sitting on the floor, and I was looking through some DVDs. Kids wanted to watch a DVD, and uh, I was sitting there, cross-legged, just looking through the DVDs, and I, and I reached for one DVD, and right as I reached, I felt something go pop in my back. And I thought, oh, that's not good. And, and then I tried to stand up, and as I tried to stand up, it just, my, my back just locked up completely. It was like, it took my breath away, and all that I could do was roll over onto my back, and I was just laying on the floor. I couldn't move. And Trissy was sitting at, at her desk, at her computer, and she turned around, and she goes, uh, are you okay? And I no, I'm not okay. I can't move. So I can't get up. She goes, well, just roll over. I said, I can't roll over. I can't, I can't do anything, you know. And son came in. And he tried to roll me over. He said, don't move me. Don't touch me, man. I can't. It was terrible. And I, as I was laying there, I thought, happy birthday to me. Right? <laughs> what a way to celebrate, right? The outer man is decaying. He's wasting away. And pain in our back, that's really, for most of us, that's the least of our worries, There's much more serious things that we contend with and ultimately that phantom that's lurking of death. When Jesus Christ returns, he will prove fully and finally that death has been conquered. The curse has been removed. God demonstrated his power over death when he raised Christ from the dead and when he sends his son again, even death and Hades will be destroyed and the curse will be crushed. Again, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. In John, eternal life is is pictured as actually a present gift. It's so certain that you will have life that lasts forever if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. John says, you've got it now. It's as if you have it now. And certainly you will have it forever. And it's not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life because of the resurrection There are four qualities of the resurrection I want to remind you of this morning. First is this. The resurrection is personal. Job chapter 19. Job said, while he was suffering, 
even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall see, and whom my eyes will behold. Job said, I will see God. You know, the book of Job is probably the first book that was ever written. Chronologically speaking, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, about 1500 BC, but the book of Job historically happens probably closer to Abraham's life, 2000 BC. And so the first recorded scripture that we have gives us an affirmation that there will be life that comes after death. And that the resurrection will be personal, individual. Throughout scripture, in fact, we see uh, resurrection isn't normally pictured as this corporate thing, but as, as you, you will be resurrected. You will not be annihilated. You will not lose your identity. You will last forever. And your resurrection will be bodily. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. I, my body, will be resurrected. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there's a natural body, When this body goes into the ground, it will be raised a spiritual body because we were not designed to be disembodied. We are material and immaterial. That's what makes us whole. The resurrection will be personal, individual. It will also be physical. It will be your body. Third, it will be complete. Not just your body will be raised, but your mind, your emotions, your will, your conscience will become perfected. Your body will be perfect, but all the rest of you will be perfected as well. You, as God ultimately designed you to be, your personality perfected. The entire person. Fourth characteristic, the resurrection will last forever. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says the body that is raised will be a body that won't decay any longer. It won't grow old. It won't wear out. It's a body, in fact, that will be continuously regenerated. When we think of regeneration, we normally think of that moment in time, right? When we believe and God takes us out of death into life. That is, our, our spirit, which was separated from God, becomes reunited with the spirit of God, and God's spirit indwells us. Regeneration. We think of that moment, and that is true. But regeneration will also be a continual thing for God's people in eternity. I want you to turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1. What exactly will our body look like? We're not exactly sure, but Paul tells us this in Philippians. He says, Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state, the perishable body, into conformity with the body of his glory. A glorious body. Did the disciples know who Jesus was? Yeah, when he revealed himself, they could tell this is Jesus. In fact, he still had the scars 
on his wrists and on his feet, which I believe he probably will bear for eternity, an eternal reminder of the price that was necessary for us to have eternal life. It was Jesus, Jesus' personality, Jesus' identity, Jesus' body, and we will be raised similarly, but it will be a body that cannot wear out and grow old. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 2. It says, there's a river of water of life, and on either side of that river is the tree of life. In other words, there's not just a single tree of life. There are many of this species that's called tree of life. Along this river, there's the tree of life planted. We saw the tree of life before, didn't we? Back in Genesis, God created the garden. In the midst of the garden, he put two trees. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then a single tree, tree of life. And Adam and Eve were told, don't take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What will happen is you will die, surely. And so they took that fruit and they died. Spiritually in that day, they were separated from God. And God cast them out of the garden. And he cast them out of the garden not so that they, they couldn't go back and eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, let me cast them out and let me put actually guardian angels in front of this place so that they won't go back in and eat the tree of life and live forever. Because the tree of life causes regeneration and renewal and restoration and I don't want them to live continuously in the state of being separated from me so they can't go in they need in fact to die physically so that I can raise them up and give them a resurrection body and then when I restore the garden they'll be able to feast on the tree of life that lines the river of life and they will continuously be renewed A a personal body, your body, a physical body, a body that will never grow old and decay, that is life that lasts forever. Our greatest enemy is not Satan. Our greatest enemy is death. And Jesus has conquered death. And when Jesus returns, he will prove fully and finally that our enemy is conquered. That is, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. All of God's enemies will be conquered. We will win because God always wins. Okay, so first, the curse will be removed and it will be conquered when Jesus Christ returns. Second, the kingdom will come on earth. I want you to turn back to the book of Genesis with me again. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make something unlike anything that we have ever made before. Let us make man. According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the beginning of creation, this is God's plan. That he would make men and women. He would make us. So that we would reflect his image. We would radiate God's beautiful glory. And that in relationship with God, we would rule over all of creation. Satan intervened and he deceived men and women. 
to leave God behind and to try to find fulfillment apart from God. And because Adam and Eve believed that lie, they surrendered their dominion over all the earth. We lost it. We surrendered it to the one to whom we submitted. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole earth lies in the power of the evil one. When Jesus, was tempted, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he say? He said, all of these realms, Jesus, have been given to me. Bow down to me and I will turn them over to you. And Jesus didn't deny that they had been given to Satan, at least temporarily. But he refused to worship. What does that mean for us, church? That means this is not the kingdom. We are not in the garden. And we should not expect that we can find perfect pleasure now. And when we try to find perfect pleasure now in this current life, it is idolatry. And it will always leave us empty. It will ultimately destroy us. This is not the garden. We don't live in the kingdom. We are not the ultimate form of the kingdom as the church. Remember we said last week, we are a mystery form of the kingdom. And in this mystery form of the kingdom, we are told to live for that ultimate kingdom when Jesus returns to the earth, to align everything in our lives for the coming of the king. In fact, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, so Jesus, John's disciples, they know how to pray, but we don't know how do we pray. And he said, pray like this, our father who's in heaven, holy, hallowed, set apart, may, be, may your name be, may it be unlike any other, may it be the focal point of our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, if you want to pray for something, pray for the return of the king. And so we live for that because when Jesus Christ returns, all of God's enemies will be defeated. All of God's promises will be fulfilled. What's it going to look like? Now, I want to give you a, a very quick overview, a sketch of the phases of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay? The first event that will occur is the rapture. We see the rapture illustrated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul wrote, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. And that word for caught up is the Greek word for rapture. Okay? It means literally to be caught up. In other words, there is a, an event that will occur and Jesus Christ is not coming to the earth, but he is coming in the clouds. And for those people in the church in Thessalonica, they were afraid that their loved ones were gone, who had died. They're, they're just gone. False teachers had come in and said, no, this is the end. Death is the end. And they were living in fear. And Paul came along and said, no, it's not the end. There is a resurrection from the dead. In fact, when Jesus Christ comes, he will come in the clouds and those who are dead in Christ will first be raised and then we will be also caught up with him and we will meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. In my opinion, this happens before the tribulation period. And the reason I think it happens before the tribulation period is this. The seven years of tribulation are primarily designed to drive Israel to repentance Because Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah, but the church is not. The church has accepted Jesus as Messiah, and so the tribulation period doesn't primarily apply to us. In fact, Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians that God will deliver us from the wrath to come 
which I believe is a reference to the tribulation period. Seven years. Seven years in which hardship comes upon the earth. And particularly hardship on the nation of Israel. Tribulation period actually begins like this. Okay, we are raptured, and then the seven-year clock begins when the Antichrist makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. Why do they agree with the covenant? Because they think he is the Christ. He's a substitute Christ. Antichrist means not simply against Christ, but substitute Messiah. He makes a covenant with Israel, and he actually allows them to return to Jerusalem and establish worship on the Temple Mount. How is that possible? How is it possible that that Muslims and Jews can both have some structure on Temple Mount or will Islam be removed? I have no idea, but Jewish worship begins again. The temple is reconstructed, so they believe he must be Messiah. And they worship him and they follow him for three and a half years. And then in the middle of that tribulation period, the Antichrist breaks that covenant with them and he begins to persecute the Jews severely. And it is in that moment that they begin to realize this is not the Christ. And they begin to cry out to God to send them their Messiah. This is described in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Does that sound familiar? The nation of Israel will be be driven to the point of repentance so that they look on him whom they have pierced and they believe, finally, Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one for us. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, It's not the mystery that we spoke about last week. That was the mystery of the church. Jew and Gentile being united in one body on equal terms, that is, the church. This is another mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This mystery is that because Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah, he has allowed them to remain in their hardness. Why? So that he could turn to the Gentiles... And bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. But then he will say, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, verse 26, then all Israel will be saved. When they look on him whom they have pierced, and they repent and accept him as Messiah. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And who are the fathers? They're the ones we've been studying about all semester, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. For the sake of the fathers, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What are the gifts and calling of God? Well, in the context, he's talking about the promises, okay? the covenant promises. Now, can we apply that to ourselves? Certainly, there are gifts and promises given to us. But in Romans chapter 11, he's talking about the promises that were given through the covenants. There are four covenants that God gave to Israel. Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. Four covenants. The Mosaic covenant was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He lived righteously under the law, so he had the right, having fulfilled that covenant, to set it aside and bring a new covenant. So there are actually three covenants of promise. Abrahamic, New, 
Davidic and new. Okay? Those are the covenants of promise. And what are the promises that he made? Land, seed, and blessing. And when Jesus Christ returns, all of the promises of God will be fulfilled. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Now, you probably haven't been in Zechariah in a while, and that's okay. Just think Z, right? It's got to be at the end. It's at the end of your Old Testament. Actually, it doesn't work that way, but it just happens to fall toward the end of the Old Testament. So if you hit Matthew, just turn back a couple of books, and you will be in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14 and verse 3. It says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. We're at the end of the tribulation period where all of the nations have begun to come against the nation of Israel to destroy it. In that day, the Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by, my va- by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at the evening time there will be light again. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. In the New Testament, we call that the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's described in Revelation chapter 19 in exactly the same way. Our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come on a white horse. This robe dipped in blood. He'll have a sword on his side, and on him is written the name. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that day his name will be the only one. And he will come with his army, that is us. In robes of white, white representing the righteous deeds, our faithfulness. And we will come as an army to conquer Jesus' enemies, establish his kingdom, and be priests mediating the blessings of God to all of the nations. And what's remarkable about this battle is that it's over before it even starts. <laughs> Jesus enters the battle, and then the battle is done. A lot of times I think we imagine that right now we're, we're a part of this cosmic battle between God and Satan. But that's not the battle. Because when God enters the battle, then the battle's just over. Just like that, right? The battle right now is between Satan and God's people. And when God's people rest in him and depend upon him, they have victory. And they prepare themselves for that one day when Jesus leads us into battle. And when Jesus enters the battle, then the battle is over absolutely immediately. And our enemy is defeated And sin is destroyed forever. And death is destroyed forever. And the seed of Abraham establishes God's kingdom on the land. And God's people, both Israel and the church, experience all of the blessings that God has promised. Land, seed, and blessing at the return of God's Messiah. Kingdom on the land, established by the seed. And we come with to rule and to reign forever. In other words, when Jesus returns, 
all of our greatest longings will be fulfilled. What do we long for, really? We long, we long to be loved. We long to be safe, secure. We want to matter. We want our lives to have significance. Well, we will, because we matter to God, and Jesus will bring us with him, and he will restore all things. The kingdom will come on earth when Jesus returns. And then third, all of creation will be renewed. Read with me in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, nor will there be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Adam and Eve fell, the curse came upon them, but it also came upon all of the earth. Why? Because Adam was the steward of earth. And when the steward fell, his stewardship also was affected. So thorns and thistles came up. It was a battle, and battle for survival, to get, to get food and covering and sustenance. And earthquakes came and, and famines and floods and tornadoes. And, and we're told in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation has just been groaning. It's been groaning and it's been waiting for our restoration because when we are restored, then all of creation gets restored. Because after God takes the final enemy, that is death, and he throws even death and Hades into the lake of fire, then he takes back the the, the task of creating, and he recreates and renews all of creation. And all of creation once again gets restored so that we are living in a perfect environment once again with God. What is the greatest feature of the garden? The greatest feature of the garden is the presence of God. And notice what he says here, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Notice how the prophets describe the renewed earth. They will say, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness will be like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. And God himself will dwell among them. He will be in their midst and all enemies will be conquered and all promises fulfilled and we will live forever in the presence of God. And we need to be reminded of that once in a while. When we're feeling beaten down by life, that God always wins. Because God always wins, we will win. How do we apply this? Well, uh, I think first we also need to remember that we're not in Eden. This isn't the garden. Don't look for it, right? Even our best moments, we go, oh, I wish I could just stay in that moment. But it doesn't last. But those best moments are reminders to us that perfection is coming. Don't look for it. Don't cling for it. Don't demand it now because it is not now. But, but live for it. Long for it. In fact, Order all of your life around the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ because ultimately that is all that will last. It says in the book of Hebrews, uh, yet once more again, God will shake the heavens and the earth. It says that shaking denotes a removal of things that do not belong to the kingdom of God. Don't give your life to that. Instead, give your life 
to what lasts, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, specifically, specifically, the way that we can do that is that we pay attention to those around us who do not know Jesus Christ. Okay? As we close, I want you to consider this question. Who in your life needs to hear the good news that God always wins? That Jesus has defeated sin and death and that he will soon return. Who in your life needs to hear that? Students, as you go into the summer, I want you to pay attention. Family members that you haven't been around in a while that you need to pray for and to look for opportunities to share Jesus. Or maybe you'll do an internship and you'll be around people you've never known before. The most important thing about those people is do they know God always wins and that God has invited them to be part of his family. I want us to, to raise our awareness of those around us who may not know Jesus Christ. As we close, I'd like for you just to listen to the voice of the Spirit and see if God lays someone particular on your heart and take a few moments to pray for that person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just like Abraham, you have blessed us so that we would be a blessing. Pray, Father, that you would burden our hearts with those who don't know your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reminder from your word that we will win because you always win. We thank you for that hope and that confidence even in in the midst of days that, that can be challenging and frustrating and even sometimes filled with fear. We thank you, Father, for that confidence. And we pray, Father, that you just put in our hearts a longing to share that confidence with those who don't know your son, Jesus. Father, give us opportunity to represent you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.